This podcast is brought to you by Media 8. Welcome to Off the Cuff with Kel, conversations from the front line, a podcast and live show for survivors and the leaders who support them. I'm your host, Kelly Humphreys, a survivor of child sexual abuse, advocate, author, speaker, ambassador, a lover of all things outdoors with over 15 years of law enforcement experience. Please support me in my mission to break cycles of abuse and trauma. You can help by donating to my Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash Kelly Humphreys. Hello, guys, and welcome back to Off the Cuff with Kel. Uh, we're at episode number 13. Um, I have got the amazing Jeannie Dean with me tonight. Um, she is one incredible, resilient human being. Stop <laughs> it. Um, so, um, she is a survivor herself, um, and she's overcome some pretty big stuff in her life, addiction, um, you know, and turned all of that into some really powerful stuff with an amazing organization called, uh, Safeguarding Solutions. So I'm going to hand over to Jeannie and get her to introduce herself and we're going to get cracking. Thanks, Kel, for having me. Um, introduce myself. So... Yes, I'm Jeannie Dean. I have um, been working in this space um, for a very long time. And what led me here, I suppose, was a lived experience of growing up in family and domestic violence. Um, uh, and then the domino effect kind of took its toll. Um, so from that ended up starting to use different substances, alcohol, all those sorts of things. And then um, the vulnerability became really visible to other people, I suppose, and that resulted in an incident um, which is active at the moment, so I won't go into a lot of detail, but basically was um, uh, sexually assaulted through the course of that um, period of my life when I was 15 um, and then decided that the best way to cope with that would be to take lots of drugs. <laughs> um, yeah. And that worked for a little while um, until it didn't anymore and there was a stairwell full of police at my house and um, when I was 18, 19, started re-evaluating things, I think, because of the severity of what, it, what I experienced um, and then just continued on the journey of healing for an incredibly long time and I think probably deflected a lot of my own stuff by working within the trauma space and investing in other people's trauma as a means to avoid my own for a really long time. And eventually that didn't work either. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, so that's me. Yeah, well, in a nutshell, that was uh, a lot. But, um, guys, I, I just uh, a quick note, if you do find anything that we are uh, chatting about tonight triggering, there is some phone numbers on my website at kellyhumphreys.com. So make sure uh, you give them a call if you do find the contents upsetting at all. But we will be talking about themes of child sexual abuse and addiction uh, and trauma recovery. So um, I should have mentioned that first, but, um, you know, I got a little distracted. Um, <laughs> I had four weeks off, you guys. I lost my voice and I'm, I'm back. I'm back, right? <laughs> so um, awesome. So, Jeannie, like what a, a beginning um, to your journey. Uh, when did you uh, sort of... Were you able to speak about that abuse at a young age? Were you able to disclose or? No. So I didn't actually disclose until I was 32. Um, what did they say 24 years or 27 years is the average? Yeah. <laughs> it was a textbook uh, situation. Yeah. I was in bed, woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning. I, I'm not a great sleeper um, anyway. 
and I woke up my husband and said, this is what happened. And then I went to sleep. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. So that was, I actually had the best sleep of my night, my life that night. Um, I think Imagine. it off my chest and then came, you know, the fall from grace where you start to feel like, holy crap, I've just said it out loud. You know, what happens if he doesn't believe me? So I think he was a safe space to gauge how I might be received elsewhere. I think like when I, kind of through therapy have kind of put, paired that away around why then, why now, why him? Mm. I'd been with him for so long. Um, but I think it's just, you know, I was looking for safety. I, I had it. And it's been a long journey since then to even get to this point. I think it's actually really interesting that you say about uh, that feeling that you get after you disclosed mm. I talk about I call it um a vulnerability hangover <laughs> I, I, but it, it's so true isn't it yeah big time I remember just not wanting to wake up so I was awake but I didn't want to wake up to then have to talk about it again yeah so I waited until he got up got in the shower and then I went into the other shower had a shower got ready for work and left <laughs> so oh. that I didn't have to I didn't have to do that bit. And so then it was just a, a bit of a text exchange and said, don't really want to go into a whole lot of detail about anything. I just needed to say it. And I was very fortunate that, you know, he's an amazing man, um, but he's very happy not to have uncomfortable conversations. So when yeah. I pulled it out, it was like, whoo, that was a bit of a an off the shoulder moment for him as well, for him to yeah. do, I think. And but he was amazing, so supportive. Mm. Well, I think it's interesting you raise that um, point too about having those uncomfortable conversations because I, I think that speaks to so many survivors that, like, I struggle, like, to have any tough conversation like that. I just find myself getting that shame kind of thing happening before I know that because I'm worried I'm going to get, like, in trouble or, mm. you know, I've done the wrong thing. And it's still something that I can't quite shake it's just that kind of like the left i call the leftovers yeah. um, <laughs> it, it's true right yeah big time and i think um i don't think it really matters how old you are at the time that, of disclosure or um i think for me i you know i won't talk on behalf of anybody else but for me i still have that anticipation of not being believed i still have that anticipation of of the judgment of well, should you have been where you were or should you have been, you know, wearing what you were wearing? Should you, you know, like all of this victim blaming stuff kind yeah. of creeps in. And um, I think part of that so far for me has been a way to avoid really dealing with it. And, um, uh, yeah, it's just been, it's really hard to, like you just said, you find it hard and I'm like ee, finding it really hard as it is. So it took me a long time to even use the term. So I would say I was assaulted, but I would never use the term sexual. Um, yeah. really now that I look back on it, you know, I think I'd been disclosing for a really long time, but nobody really picked up what I was putting down because I find it, I found it really difficult to be clear about what it was that was happening for me. And I think my behaviours were the, were the start of disclosure that nobody picked up on. And, you know, I became highly promiscuous um, using lots of substances, drinking a lot of alcohol particularly, um, and then pair that with the DV situation in my family, 
dynamic um, and my mum who's just amazing but had, you know, her own things going on because of what she was going through. There was just no, I don't think there was any space for people in my direct network to actually see what was happening. And then when there was space, it was like we don't know what to do with it so we'll just we'll just see how this plays out. That's what I wanted to touch on before, actually. It's interesting because um, I, I often, um, we, well, we often want to talk, but we don't know how the other person's going to receive it, right? Mm. And there's always this, it's kind of like the elephant in the room kind of conversation. Mm. And I, I get really frustrated uh, and, and I feel, feel for survivors because it's like they want to share, but then they don't know that the person's going to be able to receive it or what's going to happen. And then it's just like, They've, they've taken all this effort, all this courage, like, and and for me, like, you know, it took me years to tell my parents, sweaty palms, like, going to be sick, want to vomit, and then you you get it out. You, you get the thing out, and it's like, I don't know what's going to happen now. And for, for many, many, as you know, Jeannie, like, with the work you do, many survivors are just not believed at all. And it's that point where it's just like, I am never ever going to talk to anyone about this ever again like yeah and I and I totally understand that because it just it takes so much to to take that step and I guess like as we're kind of having this I just want to encourage survivors who are out there like to find the right person to Mm -hmm. disclose to and you may not know who that is and you may not know how the person's going to react but try not to stop um try not to stop there like it might not be that person it might be another person who someone completely random in your family who you would never expect that will step up and be that person that you need like and and as you kind of said Jenny and I, I kind of talk about it like a turtle or, or I refer to it like as my little cat I used to have this cat who would come to the the cat flap and stick her head out but then like kind of yeah inside real quick and if she kind of thought there was like something bad out there and and we we do that we kind of like you you said you were kind of testing testing the waters with your husband and I think we we do that as survivors right yeah 100 percent. and I think that um I think as well I think it became even more difficult when I positioned myself in a sector that was you know I worked with sex offenders initially started in the drug and alcohol sector because I was using drugs and thought I could heal myself you can't do that either um, and then moved into working with sex offenders. And part of that was me trying to understand typology, you know, like how does somebody wake up in the morning and think, you know, yeah, I'm going to assault a child today, you know, like it's what's the before the before, you know, and I wanted to understand that. So I think I got into the sector because I was probably trying to heal without going to therapy. Um, and and that, that worked for a little while um, and then, uh, you know, I didn't notice it wasn't working, but everybody else around me thought I was an asshole. So it clearly was it clearly wasn't working very well. Yeah, yeah. Um, when your husband says you've changed, you're not the same anymore. I'm like, well, it's got nothing to do with me. Like, and then yeah. when you leave the job and you're like, oh, actually, it's got everything to do with me. So I think working in the industry um, between child protection and you know justice and not for profits. I've seen how the system at times will respond to disclosures. And so it made, I suppose it made me a bit more wary about what this might mean for me. And because I was older as well, like when and when I did disclose, 
if this is how 15, 14, 10-year-olds are being responded to when they're making disclosures and sharing their experiences, and these are little tiny humans who rely on people to protect them, how, how am I going to be responded to? So I think it was, for me, it that's where that pain into purpose element kicked in for me where I was like, well, if I can't do this for myself, I'm sure as hell going to be the best person I can possibly be for somebody else. Yeah. And so that's been my mission and objective ever since. I just, and I think that's just totally beautiful. I, and I, and I get that it's, it's the, the reason we connect so well and you know, the reason I do what I'm doing as well. And I, I totally understand that. And I know how much of a, a great job you do and all, that you do so thank you for that you. <laughs> um I, I wanted to go back and I just maybe it's a bit controversial but I'm kind of curious as well you know I've read lots of books and I've got kind of lots of ideas but what what did you learn about offenders like oh <laughs> like I mean like in a, in a like a little nutshell like if you can I'm certainly no expert but I would say you know, from a practitioner lens of working in that field between um, working in the prison system with 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 sex offenders and um, within the correction within the correction environment, what I learned was at the end of the day they're people, um, and all people want connection. Yeah, and I think that once I was able to separate the behaviour from the person and I was able to start working with the person, everything became a lot easier. Mm. But I think you can't underestimate a sex offender and they are, you know, often very intelligent. They know how to work the system, incredibly sensitive, you know, very observant, very intuitive and I think that it's very easy to be put in a false sense of security about, you know, how how well you're doing in the work. Um, and particularly for me back then, because that was a long time ago, um, I now only really interact with offenders in the context of investigations. But I think that um, I had two varied roles. So one was in a correctional element. The other one was a supportive role, believe it or not. My first role was actually supporting sex offenders. And just goes completely against the grain. Um, but for me, I think that if we continue to put sex offenders in a warm bucket of shit and hope that it's going to work itself out, we're contributing to the risk to kids. I think that there's got to be two sides to the coin. And at the end of the day, they're people. They're not going anywhere. We don't have the death penalty, so we've got to find a way to be able to understand the problem and mitigate the risk. It doesn't mean that no risk is ever going to exist. That's just not going to happen. But we have to find a way to mitigate what we know of. And, you know, I think that's difficult. So for me, you won't really hear me say adverse things about offenders because I don't. I just don't think it helps. I think it's, you know, we need to understand and take the fear away from it so that more people want to have the conversation to be able to create a degree of awareness. I, I just, I, I totally agree with you um, because obviously I've worked in the police now for like 16 years. So I've seen all types of offending behaviour and I, and I honestly believe all offending comes from a space of trauma. Mm -hmm. So when we look at it through that lens there's a lot of preventative work that i think we can do 
when we're looking at children, we're looking at child abuse and protecting kids from a young age to stop the cycle of offending, to stop the cycle of victimology um, and, and by looking at it from, you know, a grass roots and, you know, from the adverse childhood experiences. So, you know, totally agree with you. I am curious, though, how did you deal with your own stuff, your own trauma, your own experience mm-hmm. and also work with offenders? That's... Oh, I think... Um... I think now that I look back on it, I probably didn't do it well. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I was quite young. I had my first baby. So when I first started doing that work, so I was, I think it was about 23. Um, and at that point in time, I think I was still in a bit of denial about what happened to me as a kid and, um I didn't want to identify with it and so it was much easier. But I think that um, what it did do was uh, it pushed the trauma further and further and further back to the point that I just fell apart. So I ended up taking, once I left public service, I ended up taking a year off work um, and really just focusing on um, healing and recovery um, and Um, The bit that really shone at home for me was I went back to the state where it occurred um, and I lived there for 12 months and it was the hardest 12 months of my life. I'm constantly worried about whether or not, because it was a small um, place where where, where these things kind of took place and constantly worrying about whether or not you're going to run into the person. You know, it's a small town. Um, worried about what people might be saying about you and um, and I was working in a sexual assault, I was running a sexual assault service at the same time. So it was, um, yeah, it was really, that was kind of I think the tipping off point for me of what what I, when I, when I felt like I need to do something about this because it's not going anywhere. Isn't it interesting that it just takes, well, it stands to reason that it's going to take a long time and it's been like a whole lifetime, right? Mm. But I, I like you, uh, keep myself busy to cope, right? Mm. I, I throw myself into everything. And um, I, it's, it's interesting that you said you had to take 12 months off because we rarely as survivors will do that because all we know is survival. So we just continue to throw ourselves into this shitstorm mm. hoping that it's something is is gonna like we're gonna learn something or like you know yeah and it was a it was a real um and I'm gonna mention her name so there's a, a woman who I used to work with in child protection her name's Angela Camboris and she is an amazing human being and uh it's probably it's probably she's probably literally the reason why I actually decided to put my best foot forward and kind of stand in my strength if you like and say if I've been able to do what I've done for the last you know 20 odd years I can do this you know and it's going to take me a bit of time but I can do it and she uh, and she tipped me over the edge because she actually asked me a question and and it was simple and it was just who are you and I said I'm a mum I'm a wife I'm a public servant um you know all of these things and she's like no 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 they're roles that you have but who are you and I just 
literally fell apart. <laughs> and yeah. so it was at that moment she's like, you need to really reevaluate what you're doing because eventually you are going to fall apart and you might not come back from it. So um, I just looked at my kids and, you know, really it was for them, you know, for that was when I, I think I started reevaluating my whole life and I didn't want my kids to go through the same shit that I did and I wanted the cycle to stop with me. And, you know, I don't think I've eroded all of the shit, <laughs> but I think in comparison there's no violence, there's, um, you know, appropriate boundaries, security, love, nurturing, communication. You know, my kids are very aware of um, my background in an age-appropriate way. They are very aware of when I'm having a difficult time and we'll sit around the table and say, you know, I'm having a, having a, rough, a rough trot. Um, and they, my daughter knows that all I need is just a warm hug from her so she will just come and lay her head on my shoulder because I'm not a real hugger. Um, not very uh, touchy feely person, and um, but my kids know exactly exactly what they need, exactly what we need, and exactly what I need, and it's just been the most amazing experience, but also very triggering at the same time. So as soon as my son entered adolescence, it put me in a tailspin. So it's it it never goes away. Basically, yeah. is what I'm getting to. Like it doesn't matter how hard you work, what kind of work you do it's never going to go away. You just get better at dealing with it. And, you know, for me, drugs was the solution for a really long time. And did you, when did you stop? Uh, how, how are you able, what, when did you stop the, the addiction? When were you able to make oh. that decision? It's like, this isn't for me. I can't keep doing this. I got arrested. <laughs> well, that will do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, some people that will do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was, um, yeah, so I got arrested um, and it wasn't a, a small situation. Um, um, it was at the time one of the biggest drug busts Victoria had ever seen, so it was quite substantial um, and it scared me. You know, I I was never um, oblivious to drugs and, um, you know, I've lost relatives as, as a result of addiction and it's... Um, Oh, don't want to get upset. Um, and I just want to be careful about how I phrase what I'm about to say. Okay. Respectful. But um, my family is amazing, um, my maternal family. And, um, and those who have been affected by substances taught me a lot and I didn't want to repeat their mistakes. Yeah, and yeah. so it was really when we when I was arrested, that was all that was running through my head. And my cousin Matthew, who passed away, um, is was just the best human and you know naughty human, but really really great human and had the best heart. And I remember when he found out that I was using speed and ice and whatever and. Um, he was a heroin user um, and so he was like, what are you taking that shit for? Um, and I was like, oh, so if he's saying that this is bad, it must be bad, <laughs> you know, like this must be a good thing. So um, I wasn't oblivious to it um, but it gave me, the drugs gave me, um, it gave me the opportunity to be who I thought that I was um without fear 
and without shame and without apology and um and when I got arrested and got caught um that was really scary because I was like I actually don't know who I am <laughs> I don't know who I am without the drugs I don't know who I am without all of these people that we had around us when we were using and dealing and you know it was it was really a big adjustment and it took me a long time to be comfortable enough in my own skin just to stay in my house wow. by myself. <laughs> it was, yeah, really tough. But, yeah, so the, the tipping point for me was being arrested and not wanting to repeat the same mistakes as my family and watching watching what happened to, you know, their mums and what I was doing to my mum. Well, I, thank you for sharing that. I know that was probably quite difficult. So I appreciate your vulnerability. Yeah, all good. Um, I, I do wonder, and, and I guess this is just more of a general question, um, particularly those who do struggle with addiction, is, and, and look, I've never been addicted to anything except working really, really hard and probably drinking a lot of alcohol when I was 18. And, yes, I was quite promiscuous. I didn't know who I was, um, you know, so those things. But I didn't ever do drugs because I was so good at my sport. So it wasn't, you know, kind of in my my experience. But my understanding is when it gets to that point when you're feeling so anxious that you have to do something mm. at that point in time that, um, you know, it, it's to take the thing or to, to take the drug, to do the, the thing, to, to kind of stop that feeling of being so uncomfortable in yourself. And yeah, is that, is that a fair yeah. kind yeah, of? I agree. I do agree. I think, um, I think I'd compare it to, What's it like? So it's for me, and I think for for different people, it's different, right? Like the tr the trigger point of of drug use is different for everybody. And I think that um, for me, it was a way for me to connect with others without fear. And so, you know, if you think about attachment theory, you know, it was, <laughs> um, you know, I wanted all of these connections in my life. I wanted all of these people in my life who I thought were safe. But there was every possibility that they weren't safe. So I'm just going to keep everyone at an arm's length just in case. But I'm still going to be upset if you don't invite me somewhere because I really do want to go. But I'm always going to say no, but I want you to keep inviting me. <laughs> I think they call that ambivalent attachment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So basically for me, it allowed me to be part of society and be part of connections without feeling the fear the fear was always there but I just didn't feel it um mm. and when I started to feel it I would just take more of the drugs so for me my my drug of choice um so people would say was speed so amphetamines uppers um I wasn't I never was into hallucinogenics because being out of control is a real struggle for me um I have to know what's happening, when it's happening, how many people are going to be there, like all of that sort of stuff's really important. Yeah. Um, I don't like things coming out of left field too much. Um, nope, me either. I'm hearing so, I, so I stay in my lane in my life because it's familiar. And if something comes out of left field when I'm in my lane, that's fine because I know how to anticipate that and how to respond to that. But back in the back in the day when I was doing all of those other things. Um, things were coming out of left field all the time. And so the only way to really cope with that was to use. And it allowed me not to think about my trauma. It allowed me to be who I thought I wanted to be. It allowed me to form part of a group. Um, 
it's no different to OMCGs like um, outlaw motorcycle gangs. It's no different to, I would say, even people that um, self-harm, you know, like when you think about, if you think about asphyxiation, for example, you know, and you talk to people that that engage in those behaviours and those soothing behaviours, and often what clients have said to me is that just before you pass out, you get this beautiful feeling of peace. And I think that's what I was looking for. I, I just wanted to be, I wanted to be able to go to sleep like normal people, you know, like that you go to bed and in 20 minutes you're asleep. <laughs> um, I go to bed and in three hours I'm still awake. So it's, I just, I was trying to find normal until I realised that it just doesn't exist. And um, the drugs made that very confusing for a really long time. But then, but then once I got off it, I had to find new ways to do it. And so it became spending. So I would, you know, every time I felt sad, I'd go shopping mm. <laughs> or I would eat. Or so the addiction characteristics never went away. I just redirected them into a healthier avenue. I think that's really important. And I guess it's actually good that you said that because I kind of was going to lead there anyway. Um, how I don't even know how to ask this question. How did you kind of, I want to say maybe wean yourself off like how did you start to make those choices and identify okay well i can see that this is the what i'm going to do now because i can feel it and you know you're sort of like trying to like change your patterns of behavior you're trying to do the right thing so how did you start to um make the choice and choose something different in order to stop taking those drugs or did you just how did you do that I just covered it. Yeah. So I um so I was very fortunate in terms of, you know, my addiction. Um I, you know, trauma and abuse have, have um not only caused me lots of harm, but given me lots of tools. <laughs> um I'm very good at chopping things off when I want to, in you know, whether it be substances, relationships, you know, I could have a relationship for 15 years and something happened and the next day, bang, it's gone and I will never engage in it again. And it's not a great skill to have, <laughs> but it can be really helpful. Yeah. Um, and so when, after we got arrested, <laughs> the driver for me for change was fear. Um, the biggest fear for me was being confined in a space um, and jail was a real option. Um, and so the fear and I'm also a rescuer. So um my now husband, who's just a superstar, um, he really struggled to, you know, affect the behaviour change. Um, and for me, not having him in my life wasn't an option. And so I decided, well, I'm going to fix him. So I went to TAFE and did a drug and alcohol course and became <laughs> his uh, pseudo-therapist. That didn't work either. And, um, um, you know, everybody has to do their own journey. And so for me... My husband was my motivation. You know, I, I, this was the man I wanted to be with. This was the man that um, allowed me the opportunity to have the career that I have now. If I had have been charged, I wouldn't be deemed as a fit and proper person and I would not be able to do my job. Um, and we'd been together for three months and at the time of arrest they gave him an option. You can take the lot and let her go or we'll chop it between you. And he said, just let her go. So... You know, kind, well, of, kind of owed him. Yeah. Great romance, you know. 
But look at you now, like I, I just, um, I, the work that you do is just so significant. And, you know, if there's pain into purpose, it's like you kind of epitomise uh, what that looks like, you know. Yeah, and I think it's like um, I, I can remember, you know, seeing the Centrelink social worker. I can remember going to the psychologist. I can remember engaging with teachers at school. I can remember people making adverse comments about my father, um, but no one doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I initially was really angry about that. Like how how is it that you can see this young person who was really quite, you know, I had a lot of friends, but I wasn't really the boyfriend girl or the, you know, I wasn't wasn't kissing guy. It wasn't really a priority for me. Yeah. And then I went from nothing to engaging in something with anything that had a heartbeat. <laughs> so, you know, how did nobody pick up on that? And how did all of these things happen that people now in my family will talk about, you know, they'll talk about me calling on a Monday crying because I'm coming down like a nobody's business, you know, or because I've missed the train and I'm just completely hysterical because actually I've been awake for six days. <laughs> oh. um, so when you think about and we have those conversations now and we can laugh about it, but it's also like how was all of this happening and nobody said anything? And so I think for me what I, in terms of turning the pain into purpose, it was I'm never going to treat someone how I was treated and I'm always going to be the person for someone when they need someone because I didn't always have someone there for me. Mm-hmm. And I think if I had of and it had have been, the right person, my life would look very differently today. And, you know, even if I think about when I was, I think I was, might have been 10 or something, and I had to go to hospital, I'd had an asthma attack and there were bruises all over my legs and all these sorts of things. And the ED doctor said, oh, how'd you get the bruises on your legs? And I said, oh, I just play a lot of soccer. And they were like, oh, okay then. <laughs> that was yeah. it. So I just think, you know, you've just got to, be curious, you know, like don't be judgmental and working in child protection for so long and you'd be, and I hear the way that people talk about families and parents and, you know, like well, they just need to get off the drugs. It's like that's like me saying to you, you can't go home tomorrow and see anyone that you've ever known and loved. That's okay. what you're asking them to do. Everything that is familiar sits within that action of drug use and what the drug use gives them, you know, like yeah. trying and Try and put their shoes on for a minute, feel it, take them off, put yours on and help them. You know, don't don't cast judgment. Um, and I was actually on that, I was going to ask you, and look, from my perspective, I, I obviously as a well, police officer, I like just dealing with people with mental health and substance abuse is, you know, it, it's like an everyday occurrence. Mm. Um, but for someone living with someone who has addiction, what advice would you give to them on how to support someone who's going through that process? Oh. I know that's like a loaded question and it, could oh. be, and it depends oh. on the person probably. But it's going to sound brutal. No, not really. Um I think don't make it about you. That's probably my biggest piece of advice. Sometimes I think when, when we're caring for somebody with addiction or supporting somebody with addiction, 
half of the actions that we engage in are actually about us trying to regain control <laughs> and, 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 and from fear. So from a good place, but generated by fear, which means that you're probably not going to get the right outcome. Um, so I think you can't fix an addict. Um, they have to want to do it and you need to be firm, fair and friendly. They're probably my three phrases. Yes, that's great. Yeah. Um, and I'd probably even throw fierce in there. And if, you, if you're going to put something up there as a consequence to support behaviour change, you have to follow through as hard as it is. And for me, you know, I had to do that with my mum, which was really hard. You know, my mum, as a result of the DV and whatever else, ended up with a pretty significant gambling addiction. And um, a very, a very dear colleague um, who I rang about three weeks before Christmas, things were just really doing it tough with my mum. And um, at that point, he said, you've got to make a decision about what you want to do. And you can either do it now while she's able-bodied and able to activate herself, or you're going to be doing this for the rest of your life because she'll be too old to do anything about it. And so I had to tell my mum to leave my house three weeks before Christmas and talk to all of my family members and not let them bail her out. So she was forced to stand on her own two feet and nobody enabling her. We supported her, but we made her take all the steps herself and she's now amazing and mm -hmm. I've got my mum back and I'm not a parent to my mum anymore, which is just the best feeling. It's, you know, particularly going through this next step of, you know, going through the um, the justice system for my own situation. I really need my mum. Yeah. And the fact that I have her and that she can actually be there for me because she's not carrying all of this other weight is just the best feeling in the world. So, um, yeah, I think the best thing that I can say to people is don't make their journey yours and make sure that you ask yourself, why am I reacting this way and how does it serve the solution? Because if you're reacting, you're angry or you're hurting or you're frustrated and that's not going to serve anything. Yeah, it's that's perfect. And I, I think the other word that pops into my head is perseverance. Like mm. it's and, and that sounds like what you've been able to do with your mom. Um, yeah, I think the first thing people do, you know, and there's a really great, I wish I could remember the guy's name, but he says that um, the first thing that we do when people are presenting with an addiction, and if we think about the war on drugs for an example, you know, we stigmatise, we isolate all the things that addicts are trying to recover from already. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Impose yeah. on them again and then expect them to get well when really what they need is connection. But I think the issue is that we don't actually understand what that means. We think that connection means enabling and supporting even when the person's not supporting themselves. And support doesn't always feel good, you know. Yeah. It does not always feel good to the person on the other end. And I think it's all about delivery and setting up. Um, so with my husband, it was around creating opportunities for us to share feedback with each other, but we had to confirm with each other that what he heard was actually what I delivered. Because in the moment when you're angry, you are, you don't actually hear what the person said. You, you only hear your version of it. 
And so um, it was really important for us to say, what did you just hear me say then before you answer, (laughs) you know? So, yeah, yeah, I think it's just perseverance, time, patience and not making it about yourself. That's that's bloody good. You should be on a podcast or something. Oh, no, fuck. I, and, any, I, you know what, sometimes you do want to say to them, like, fuck, <laughs> you know, snap out of it. Yeah, and, and I guess there's a place for that too for, yeah. you know, the even in a loving way. 100%. Speak, speak the truth in love, you know. Yeah. Um, but there's that time to be fierce too when, you know, if the person does become a danger to you or, uh, or to themselves and then you know you need to put those boundaries in place and and, and that's hard it's it's hard especially for, for those of us who've got lived experiences and boundaries are difficult um, being able to say what you need is not it's not easy yeah and I think it's also Cal you know no it's not easy 100% it's not easy um, but I think you've got to get to a place and I think this comes with therapy um, or a good really good support network um, well, you just have to stop giving a fuck what people think, <laughs> you know, like. I wish I could do that. I'm getting there. I'm getting there, Jeannie. <laughs> you know, I, did, I never spoke about anything to do with my past for a, re- for a really long time, you know, yeah. because, you know, and even today sometimes people will say, oh, maybe don't say that you're a survivor. Oh, maybe don't say. And I was like, why? You know, <laughs> we're having a Royal Commission to say that we need to increase visibility over child abuse, um, aged care, elder abuse, whatever it may be, mental health reforms, family law court, whatever it is, we're saying that we need to create more awareness but we're also not providing a safe space for people to say, yeah, I fucked up a bit when I was younger and this is why I did it, you know, yeah. and and not be scared of judgment. I am, I do worry sometimes that, you know, I might be too much for someone um, and that's okay you know, like that's okay. That's okay. We don't we don't have to be friends with everybody we meet. We don't have to work with everybody that we might start a relationship with. We don't, and I might not be the best person for you in life or business. But what I am is honest, authentic, and respectful. And I'm absolutely content that I'm not okay, that I'm not the right fit for everyone. I'm absolutely okay with that. And if my if my lived experience makes people feel uncomfortable, I think it's, um, and I actually mentioned this today in a in a session with a group of um, executives where people were very uncomfortable about talking about child abuse and, you know, I was sharing this with Cal before the podcast and, um, and I got everybody in the room to say, you know, the word penis and vagina mm-hmm. and all the slang terms that go along with it because for me it's like, I've spent my whole life being uncomfortable in silence and in the darkness and I think I now deserve a little bit of light. So I'm just, it's taken me a long time to feel deserving of that and so now I'm just rocking it as best as I possibly can and as respectfully as I can. But I think it's okay for everyone to feel a bit uncomfortable and I think it's necessary. You know, I think it's necessary for people to get comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yeah, I fucking love that man <laughs> it's so good um <laughs> told you i'd drop an f-bomb <laughs> so i didn't mean to i'm um, surprised they haven't sworn more <laughs> yeah no you're doing a good job um i i just I, I think there's something in that whole being uncomfortable thing um where we just don't really know what to say and it does perpetuate that you know silence and 
not everybody's going to have the capacity to kind of hear your story. Um, and that's why I think it's wise to choose the right people to disclose to. Mm-hmm. But I don't think, uh, I don't think we should be silenced in our truth. And, and I think that that's something that, um, and that's why my myself and my business partner and even you very similarly uh, have that trauma-informed training for, you know, businesses and organisations to help vulnerable people feel safe when they come into those spaces because, you know, we need to feel safe to disclose, safe to be able to have those conversations and be able to say, hey, you know, that's my story, I need help or this is what I need. But we don't do that because we don't know that we're going to be met with, you know, that, that safe yeah, 100%. Safe space. And it's the same with people in our life. And, you know, you're very bold, Jeannie, and you've been able to, like, get that point where you've been able to take your power back. And, you know, there's a lot of people who listen to this um, that aren't there yet, that aren't in that space where I don't give a fuck what anybody else thinks anymore because they've had to live their life trying to keep everybody happy so they don't feel like, you know, they have to be seen. Yeah, and I think don't get me wrong. I do, I do care. I do care deeply. <laughs> um, I just don't care anymore about not being truthful about who I am. Yeah, because I, I think I think that that only derails the recovery because it's like I have to be this version of myself here, and I have to be this version of myself somewhere else, and you know professionally yes we all wear masks in different situations depending on the context that we're in and you know we work with large-scale organizations government organizations regulators and whatever and you know I am a true version of myself in all of those settings and you know I'm I probably won't drop the c-bomb or the f-bomb quite as frequently but um but I'm I'm certainly not afraid to say where I've come from and um and I think sometimes it's really helpful um for people to you know, I think it's naive to think that the people in the room that you're teaching may not be coming from a similar space. And to be able to hear somebody talking about that might be a little bit empowering where they get closer to wanting to talk to somebody about it. But I think what's really important to reference too is it's okay not to disclose. <laughs> like yeah. you don't have to. And but if you're not going to at least go through a process of trying to sit with it in a safe way. And that was probably what I didn't do well in the beginning. Yeah. Um, you know. Well, that's actually is one uh, one of our viewers has, has put the question in there, and your view, is it necessary to disclose? So you've kind of answered that because I very similarly would um, probably say the same thing. I think it's necessary to disclose in as much as um, I think you should tell someone hmm. or write it down or whatever you need to do to get it out of inside of you to somewhere else because our bodies hold the trauma. So I want to say it's necessary to disclose. I think it's necessary to disclose in as much as you feel safe to do is exactly what you said, but I think you've got to get it out and and to find at least a safe person, a therapist or whatever, even if you never make a report, I think it's vital to your healing um, to be able to find that safe space in order to have that conversation and, you know, begin that process for yourself Um, because talking to the wrong person, you know, that's going to perpetuate that shame and and stuff for yourself and you there's no shame here like you did nothing wrong i just want to reiterate i probably say it every session because you know it it takes that long sometimes for us to really start to believe and internalize the belief that we did nothing wrong and i think you know it's normal as well that even when you you know i think 
I'll just give a when people I think when a lot of people and and people have said this to me you know like you you seem like you're a lot older than what you actually are you um you know you're so intimidating and I used to take that as a negative um or as a judgment whereas it's now kind of explained to me that um that the intimidation isn't a negative it's just this like wow moment and that embarrasses me um so i so when people say things like that i'm like oh okay you know my eyes will drop and whatever but i think what's really important is that at any point that when you are disclosing or not disclosing or you know whatever you're choosing to do as long as what you are doing is healthy and isn't hurting you or somebody else do what you need just do what you need to do the way that you need to do it there's no there's no book on this in terms of you know what how to respond to trauma you know like there's lots of books that you can read but they're not all going to be relevant to you and i think it's a situation of you know your truth you know what happened you know your perception and reality of what happened and that's what happened but for me now that even though i look or present confident or brave or whatever the words you want to use don't for a second think that it doesn't come back and bite me in the ass you know like there are days where i just can't get up you know like i just get stuck in my own hole and i just can't get up and there are days where I overthink everything or somebody will look at me and I'll be like oh what's their fucking problem and it's, you know like you sound like me a little bit you know so maintenance is everything just because you've disclosed once doesn't mean you're not going to do it again like that's about that's processing and just get a really really good therapist you know I have the most amazing human um and I'll give him a shout out his name's Nick Valentine he's beautiful 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 therapist and he introduced me to IFS internal family systems theory and it is the most powerful modality for my recovery ever um and it's kind of, it's a, a CBT derivative that stems out of like Buddhism so it's quite spiritual you've got to kind of be able to think a bit out of the square but when you said disclose to someone I agree with IFS sometimes that can be you so it's you know there's little parts of you that are popping around everywhere that are largely causing these activations connect with those parts and take control and things will start to settle so sometimes if you ever see me somewhere and i'm whispering to myself i'm actually talking to the parts that might be elevated after a, a, a session or something so it's um just don't carry shame you know like no one's okay like bloody hell <laughs> we're all a bit fucked. just own it <laughs> It's so true. And, and I think, too, it's really important to remember, and, and we, we don't always know this, but part of healing is uh, recognising that a lot of the things that we believe and we think are things that were put there by a perpetrator in the first place, right? Correct. Words spoken over us to keep silence uh, in order to maintain and continue the offending. And, you know, we've internalised that belief and it's become something that, you know, we might have told ourselves a story about or created this belief around that in order for it to make sense. So, um you know, it does take that time and, you know, we do need to sometimes, and you said, Jeannie, you took 12 months off. I've just taken, like, I'm probably at eight months now, um, and, you know, a whole change of my life and I'm going to share all that with you guys on my socials. Uh, lots of really crazy things happening, but, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do some of the things that 
I've done unless I had actually stopped and really, really looked into myself. But we never give ourselves that opportunity because we're survivors and we're so busy coping and surviving that we actually just dismiss all the things that we need just to, to, to keep going. We just keep going and we just do not acknowledge things, the emotions, the things we're dealing with uh, in order to stop them and in order to really, really understand what's going on. And I think that's where the network's important, right? Like yes. you've, got to, you've got to find your people. Like I think, you know, everyone's got, I think there's, there's people out there for everyone and sometimes it takes a bit to find them. Yeah. And I've got some amazing people in my life and um, one, uh, one person in particular who um, uh, has challenged me throughout my personal life and my career Um who's just a superstar. She was my, she was a boss of mine at Corrections and um, she challenged, she challenged me hard, you know, like really hard, like, where's this coming from? Is this about you or is this about them? You know, like, and I think it's really important, particularly for survivors who are self-critical, who perceive everything as a potential threat, who, you know, anticipate the risk everywhere. You're like a meerkat just constantly kind of circling around <laughs> looking for yep. it. Yep. I think that um I think that um it's a it's a what's the what am I trying to I think she and I'll say her name. Her name's Melissa Braden. She's just a super she is really very dear to my heart. And um she she pushed me in directions that sometimes I was like, oh, fuck you, you know, like you just really got upset. And but now um, at this point in my life, you know, I, I am where I am and I'm incredibly happy and I feel very, um, very fortunate that I was able to come out the other end because, you know, all the research should say that I would be, you know, putting things in my arms and selling my body and um, and I and I didn't and haven't done that and it's to those people you know it's the network that you're able to wrap around you don't try and do any of this on your own um it's possible to survive but not to live your life you know and I think we all deserve to have really amazing things happen in our lives whatever they may be Mm. And I think suffering in silence doesn't doesn't really help the situation, particularly when you don't need to. You know, you've got amazing podcasts that you're delivering to give people a platform to be able to share things and other people to hear things and feel like, yes, I'm not on my own in a safe way without having to go to a group session or whatever. There is no need in today's day and age to do this by yourself. You know, mm. sit on a podcast with your screen off and just listen to know that you're not alone. Yeah, I love that. And that's, that's awesome. I think too, uh, just to add to that is so often, and you sort of touched on it, Jeannie, but just to expand is that there are services out there uh, and, and more services and you can poke a stick out now for, you know, addiction and substance abuse and, you know, anything really, but we often don't uh, engage out of fear or shame or, you know, having to disclose, but you have to remember that people that work in these organisations do it because they're really passionate about support and they're trauma-informed they get it they understand many have a lived experience um you know but it's just taking that step and you don't necessarily have to take that step by yourself and if you can find that person to walk through the door with you or just to even make the call if you can't make the appointment asking someone hey could you 
you know, just do that. Take that step for me so that it's not so hard. Uh, and I think it's just that initial step to getting help and finding the right person. Um, but, you know, I have never grown so much as I have in the last, um, you know, 12 months because I've surrounded myself with leaders in, in child protection, mm-hmm. you know, pushing myself in, in ways. And, and right now, like as, as you will learn soon, I am so fucking uncomfortable. It's not funny. Like I feel sick every day because I'm like, holy shit, the steps that I'm taking right now are just a massive they're massive for me and um but you you don't grow unless you take a leap of faith sometimes and you sometimes I, i've called on people i never thought i would say this i was like i gotta do this myself because you know i'm the only one that knows how i work and what i need but other people can help <laughs> other people will help oh my god cal i can relate to that <laughs> It's still an issue for me. <laughs> the issue for me is trust, you know, like it's it's a it's a trust issue. And even some of the people nearest and dearest to me, I still would be like, oh, I don't know. I think I should just do it myself, you know, and eventually yeah. we're just going to burn out. <laughs> you know, it's just not. And I think the only way to create transformational change in this space is to bring people along in the journey and trust them with our experience. Um and it's it's fucking hard it's really hard but you know I've done that with one person um so well a few people but one person really strongly where it feels like a safe bubble that maybe I might be able to get another bubble to pop off that and then slowly just get more and more so it's um it's it's really really tough but um the the big thing that um a person said to me was the only way for you to truly reach your peak is to ra- is to surround yourself with a network. And since I've done that, I just feel like I am getting better and better every day at letting people in. But sometimes I still get triggered by particular things that think, you know, you could just look like somebody that's hurt me and I'd be like, oh, nope. <laughs> that's, you know, so it doesn't, it never goes away. And I, And that's the one thing that I want, I don't want people to think that, you go to therapy or you listen to a podcast or you go to a treatment facility or you do all these things and that's the golden ticket to, you know, I'm I'm normal now. What's <laughs> there's normal? No, no, there's no such thing and I, you know, I'm really great today but I could be really shit in three months' time and that's okay, you know, that's yeah. okay. And I think everybody needs to remember that it's okay. I know it's everybody says it but it's okay not to be okay what's not okay is that society doesn't give us permission to be outwardly not okay so that we can get better. If somebody was walking around with a cancer bag, with a, with a drip because they had cancer, everybody would be flurrying and saying, what can I do to help you? But when you say that you've got, you know, severe chronic anxiety and PTSD, it's like, whoa, we don't really know what to do with that. So, you know, are you okay? Yep. Good. Okay. Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah and it's, it's all okay, guys. <laughs> it's just yeah. a different mind. <laughs> Yeah, and, and again, like, I think it's really important uh, for many people that do not, you, you're right, they don't know what to say. And I think the, the key question is what can I do to support you right now? Mm-hmm. What do you need from me right now? Or is something, I'll put it back onto the person so you're giving them, like, um, control and empowering that person to make those decisions for themselves. So, yeah, yeah. fantastic. Um I uh, we're just about out of time. Like we could probably, I think you should come back, Jeannie, and and, and jump on a panel or something. We'll continue this conversation. 
Um, just really quickly, um, tell us a little bit about what um, uh, your organisation does. I have a sort of brain fart. <laughs> uh, a, a bit about what your uh, safeguarding solutions. Oh, what we do. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sorry. sorry. We all we operate mainly in the um, child safety and vulnerable adult space. So we work with a broad range of sectors and organisations, both government, not-for-profit, corporate industry, um, you know, fast food outlets, anybody that recruits people really, um, in supporting them to create cultures of safety um, through the intersections of uh, whatever standards might exist, whether it be, you know, disability or child safety or whatever it may be, and the intersections with other regulatory responsibilities that exist within your organisation so that you're getting a full picture of compliance rather than a little bit over here and a little bit over here. Um, because I think we start looking at things as separately and new and different, and that only creates more chaos and less investment. Um, then we also do various investigations, mainly reportable conduct investigations, um, some sexual harassment workplace investigations. We're very selective about what we choose to take. We'll only take what we think that we will deliver the best outcome on, like product-wise, um, and we provide lots of training. So lots of training around interviewing vulnerable witnesses, um, interviewing respondents or subjects of allegation, and how to create child safe organisations, but largely focusing on governance, risk and compliance. So we don't do a lot of the lot. frontline um, stuff, but we focus a lot on uh, system-based advocacy rather than individual person-centred advocacy. And that's purely because I get very triggered by person-centred um, advocacy work and I do do it, but I that I do it um, pro bono and usually do it for two people a year because it's okay. it's emotionally all I can take. And, and and it is very difficult to support survivors through their healing journey and those types of things, it's particularly when there's been like an offence and stuff like that as well. Yeah. Um, but that's that's awesome. Like that you, you just do so much. And, look, systems are so important, remember, we, we can't. Uh, survivors need to feel safe. Parents need to feel safe putting their children into, you know, organisations, schools, mm -hmm. we need safe spaces. So um, very significant work. And and we know, like, you know, even, not that I want to get into too much media and stuff now, there's been a lot in the media, uh, you know, around offend, offending happening in, in places that are deemed to be safe. So we know how important the work you do is. So thank you for um, yeah. I think, don't get into a false sense of security if you're getting no reports that nothing's happening. It just means that you don't know about it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Um, so, guys, I just Jeannie, thank you for joining us tonight, um, for being so vulnerable um, and just sharing so openly and fiercely as you as you do. Um, just, yeah, I'm going to get you back. <laughs> so, uh, but, thank you, yeah. Al. Thank you so much. Um, thank you guys uh, for tuning in um, and for those who are listening. Um, you can access this podcast on all podcasting platforms on my website, kellyhumphreys.com. Um, and guys, we'll be back in a fortnight. Uh, so thank you and we will see you again soon. Cheers, thank guys. You. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Jeannie. Thank you so much for being part of Off the Cuff with Kel. Breaking cycles of abuse and trauma is not something that can be done alone and requires all of us working together. Your support makes a huge difference. If you've found the content of this podcast valuable, 
you can support my work through my Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash Kelly Humphreys. You can also find me on all major social media platforms. Through my website, kellyhumphreys.com, you can contact me for speaking in workshops as well as purchase my first book, Unscathed Beauty. If you found any of the content today distressing, please reach out to appropriate support agencies in your country. For emergencies, contact your local law enforcement agency. 